You are listening to Tough Island, Maine on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 on your FM dial, serving mid-coast, down-east, and central Maine, and on the internet at WERU.org. Warning, these true stories may not be appropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Chapter 6 My name is Crashberry, and for two years, when I was a much younger man, I lived on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island. A couple of years living in a fish shack didn't make me an expert on Matinicus, But it was a long enough immersion to recognize the distinctive nature of the island, to see beyond the myth and the hype, to study a unique society with a wannabe writer's brain, filtered through a thick lens of drugs, (laughs) youth, and hard work. My time on Matinicus taught me an important lesson. Be careful on Tough Island. To listen to previous episodes of Tough Island, visit Crashberry.com. You can also listen via the WERU archives at WERU.org. It was Halloween Day 1991, just hours before the arrival of the powerful storm that would kill 13. including the six-man crew of the Andrea Gale, the fishing boat from Gloucester, Massachusetts, whose sad fate would be immortalized in Sebastian Younger's book, then film, called The Perfect Storm. Something is wrong with my middle finger, I said to Donald. My hand is killing me. You better toughen out, because we can't stop now, he replied. Not with this weather coming. We had less than 24 hours warning before the awful weather that would become the perfect storm was due to arrive. All the islanders were nervous because Matinicus still bore scars from the winter storm that wrecked havoc in 1978, 13 years before. That was a real storm. So Captain Donald and I worked long and hard shifting most of our gear to deeper water to keep it from getting stove up on the shore. And when we reset the gear, Captain Donald was careful to put some real distance between us and other strings of traps to prevent his gear from becoming part of a giant trap ball. Nothing worse than a trap ball. Nope. An underwater rolling tumbleweed of dozens and dozens of lobster traps created by violent sea surges and wave action. Our final task was to take up 40 traps and put them on the wharf, which for me meant a whole bunch of coiling of rope and stacking of gear and buoys. All the while, my finger throbbed and pulsed. After we put the dotted eye back on the mooring and made the bridle extra secure, 
We headed ashore and joined the rest of the crowd down on the store beach. Let's see if we can be of any help. <laughs> Friends and mortal enemies alike worked together, hauling skiffs and dories far above the high water mark. Camaraderie and joking set the mood. Come on, you can do it. By sunset, everyone headed home for dinner, but most of the islanders were going to come back at high tide when the storm's wrath would be the worst. Meanwhile, my finger was swelling, something wicked, like I'd whacked it with a sledgehammer. Mary Margaret was no help. I don't think I've got anything to help with that finger. And there was no nurse or doctor on the island. With a major storm headed our way, all the boats on Matinicus were on their moorings and gonna stay there. And the Coast Guard couldn't be bothered for a sore finger. So a friend hooked me up with a handful of opiates in pill form to quell the pain. I sat at my table in the dark, smoking cigarettes and listening to the wind and rain howl and scream as the building shook. Through my windows, I could see the boats straining at their moorings and waves crashing over the breakwater. The wharf moaned, quivered, and groaned as the harbor churned and swirled. I wondered about my safety. Could the old shack handle the storm? Would I end up buried in a collapsed pile of lumber? I wanted to go stand on the wharf to experience the weather, but I couldn't move. Not a chance. Stoned out of my gourd. Immobilized. Thankfully, feeling no pain. Eventually, despite the storm raging outside, I fell asleep. The next morning was bright and cheerful. The air was clean and brisk. There were still some waves, but nothing extraordinary. The island fared quite well. Other than some leaky roofs and flooded cellar holes, Matinicus survived the storm unscathed. That was quite the storm. I'm surprised the fish house is still standing. All the fingers on my right hand, however, were swollen, and red lines and streaks appeared on my wrist. I arranged for an emergency ride in the mail plane to the mainland. Then took a taxi to Penobscot Bay Medical Center. Blood poisoning, they said, from a sliver of fish bone jammed deep into my middle finger, just below the nail. I could have died in a couple of days, the doctor said, if I hadn't come ashore. I was given a regimen of antibiotics and told not to drink booze for the next couple of weeks. Another cab ride brought me to downtown Rockland where I enjoyed a nice Mexican lunch at El Tico Taco. Yeah, I'll have a beef taco platter and a chicken and black bean burrito, please. Before cabbing it back to the airport to hitch a flight out to Matinicus. I was gone for a total of eight hours. 
so much for being a remote main island. Meanwhile, back in the real world, my beloved grandmother was dying. The Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I headed to Massachusetts to visit her. She passed on the next day. Coincidentally, it was also the week of my fifth year high school reunion, and my parents urged me to attend. Long hair and beard full of herring bones was my look. Former classmates, most of them college graduates, were tidy and neat in their first year of their careers. Uncomfortable and feeling clumsy, I got wicked drunk and high and sad, very sad. Nana's wake and funeral were in Boston. I hadn't seen her much in the last couple of years because of my globe-trotting, coasty lifestyle, followed by my isolation on Matinicus. But she was the first person I ever truly loved who died, and I had no idea grief was so strong, able to suddenly cut so deep. I had trouble keeping myself together. I longed for the solitude of my little room on the island. Civilization seemed so foreign. Being in a noisy city and among a family that viewed me as a dark black sheep made me more heartbroken and tearful. After the funeral, my immediate family gathered for an impromptu portrait. Since we hadn't been together in a really long time, we stood on the steps of a Boston Catholic church. I wore a brown double-breasted vintage sports coat I picked up at a thrift store. I stood in the center amongst my three sisters, two brothers, and my mom and dad. With a full beard and my curly hair reaching for my shoulders, I looked like a werewolf. Thanks to the Coast Guard's war on drugs, cocaine was more expensive and difficult to get, especially for a stern man. But around supper time on a warm December evening, I found myself in someone's fish house buying an eight ball of Coke. Uh, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 120, 140, and here's a 10, 150, which to me was a treat and a luxury. Back in my shack, the phone rang just after I snorted the third long line of cocaine. It was Mary Margaret on behalf of Captain Donald. Where have you been? I keep calling and there's no answer. Uh, hanging out with some of the fellas? I said. What's up? Well, we got an unforeseen call from Rockland 
and a ship is underway, headed out as we speak. We're supposed to have the night off, and usually, in the case of pilots and ships, we generally had a day's notice. But on this foggy and moonless mid-December night, it was a matter of minutes. Donald wants you down at the steamboat wharf in 15 minutes. If I'd known a ship was en route, I would have skipped snorting the cocaine until later and would have settled for a mellow puff of reefer. and a nip or two of cheap Canadian whiskey. Instead, I was flying. Soaring. And the lines I'd razor-bladed in my shack were gigantic. So I was pretty jumpy. And fidgety. And fidgety. And probably not in the best condition to be performing any commercial maritime endeavors. <laughs> Hey there, Crash. <laughs> Captain Donald wasn't sober either. Didn't get the call about this ship until after I started my monthly scotch, he said. Mary Margaret wanted me to throw away the rest of the drink. Why wouldn't? <laughs> Hell, she knows it's a sin to waste booze. Aboard the dotted eye, both of us aglow, we headed for the rendezvous. In addition to being the backup wheelman, in case Captain Donald had a sudden heart attack while underway, my job as quote-unquote Lee Captain was to stand on the bow of the dotted eye as we pulled alongside ship. I would hold the bottom of the ladder steady while we picked up or dropped off the pilot. When the transfer was complete, we'd turn around and head back home, and for this I earned 50 bucks. It was warm for December. A low-lying winter fog engulfed us, but looking up through the shadowy mist, I could see a million stars. Wow. <laughs> Engorged with cocaine, my brain absorbed the beauty and then turned paranoid. Uh-oh. What if we had an accident? The Coasties would conduct tests and discover that Donald was drunk. Not drunk, actually, just had a big whiskey. <laughs> and I was coked to the gills. The 600-foot-long ship was hidden by the night vapor, invisible, as we got closer to the large green blip on Donald's radar screen it was time to get to work. Get up on the bound and be quick about it. <laughs> I did as told. The sea had a slight chop, maybe two or three footers, nothing I hadn't handled a thousand times before, but this night felt different. Perhaps it was the cocaine. Or maybe not. Anyways, enshrouded in fog, the ocean loomed. Unpredictable and dangerous. Suddenly, the sky above the fog banks caught fire. Giant balls of light flared. What the hell? Destroying my night vision. Ow, my eyes! The ship's crew seemed to have energized every lantern, lamp, cleag, and searchlight from the main deck to the bridge, up to the mast, and into the glowing crow's nest. It was a triangle of luminosity that transformed the vessel 
into the world's largest Christmas tree. Instinctively, I raise my right hand to shield my eyes, and in doing so, I let go of the safety rope uh -oh. just as the sea surged, oh, no. pushing the lobster boat hard. My body pitched toward the churning waters between us and the ship. Everything went into slow motion. Was this the way I was going to die? Was this the way I was going to die? A hundred feet astern of the dotted eye, a pair of larger-than-man-sized propellers were turning, spinning, ready to slice, dice, or drown me. Jesus. Jesus. An instant later, the dotted eye rolled back. I regained my footing as my right hand grabbed a hold of the safety line, and I didn't let go. Oh my friggin' lord. Captain Kreger, the salty, sprightly, 75-year-old elf of a man, clambered down the 50-foot rope ladder hanging from the ship's lowest gunwale. He skipped the last five rungs and jumped, dropping himself onto the dotted eye, landing with a thud. Safe and sound, Donald turned us about, headed back for home, back to the island, both of them chit-chatting and laughing. Nice to see you, Kreger. How was the trip? Donald, it was fine. <laughs> Oblivious to the disaster and death that had just been averted. From my perspective as a stern man, Vance Bunker was an awesome guy, a gentle and funny giant. He was an island renaissance man. He was old enough to remember hauling spruce traps, but young and intelligent enough to embrace modern improvements. Vance was smart about the ocean and drove a boat like it was an extension of his body. And he could fly. On several occasions, he gave me a lift to the mainland in his tiny plane. Captain Vance was kind and generous, tough and strong. His hands were as big as heads. His arms were mighty muscles developed during a lifetime of hard labor, working the waters off of Maine's most remote island. January 16, 1992 was a frigid night. The outer reaches of Penobscot Bay swirled. The sea smoke was thicker than fog. Screeching winds gusted over 30 knots, and there were four to eight footers of North Atlantic chop. That's the weather the tugboat Harkness was trudging through when she started taking on water. Lots of water. 
U.S. Coast Guard, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, mayday, mayday, mayday. This is the tugboat Harkness. We're taking on water big time. Uh, we got the pumps going, but I don't think we're going to make it. Vessel in distress. This is the U.S. Coast Guard. What is your position? Over. Our current position is 43.885 north, 68.863 west. This is the vessel Harkness. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Vessel Harkness. This is the Coast Guard Station Rockland. Roger that. How many people are aboard? Over. Uh, Coast Guard, there's three of us. We're screwed, I think. Uh, it ain't looking good. I think we're going down, over. Harkness, this is Station Rockland. Be advised to don survival suits ASAP. We have you plotted just on the northeast side of No Man's Land Island. Captain, you need to head southeast about two miles to Matinicus Island. Repeat, steam a southeast course two miles and you'll reach Matinicus. Over. Uh, Coast Guard, we saw that island on the chart. Thought it was uninhabited. Over. Vessel Harkness, this is Station Rockland. Matinicus is inhabited. I repeat, it is inhabited. Head southeast. It is your only chance. Over. On the island, people sprung to action. Captain Vance, along with Captain Rick Coles and island handyman Paul Murray, climbed aboard Captain Vance's lobster boat, the Jan Ellen, and headed toward the tug's last known position. The plan was to lead the Harkness safely into the harbor and lean her against the steamboat wharf, and the rest of us would bring the dewatering pumps on the fire engine. But the fire truck didn't start. And it didn't matter. No pumps could beat that winter night's watery wrath. Out at sea, the tug's stern went awash. The three-man crew abandoned ship as she went down. Come on, fellas, we gotta abandon ship! Abandon ship! Deep into the North Atlantic, gone forever. Meanwhile, Captain Vance and his crew battled the freezing spray and waves. The Jan Ellen was icing up. He couldn't see through the windshield, and there was nothing on radar anywhere near the last known position of the Harkness. They wouldn't spot the tug anyway, since Davy Jones had already taken her. These three island men, however, were hardy and determined. Engulfed in sea smoke, there was no sky. They stared into the churning gray and black froth all around them, searching, seeking. What about the men in the water? They must have known death would soon arrive. Were they praying, crying? Each man knew his end was near, in minutes or even less. Did panic set in? Or sorrow? Hypothermia follows, drifting, 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 drifting towards unconsciousness. Cold, 
so very cold, so very cold, so very cold. Jesus, Jesus. A miracle happened. One of the tug's crew had grabbed a waterproof flashlight. A Christmas present from his daughter before abandoning ship. His right hand was seized up and clenched tight around the gift. His frozen claw glowed into the dark night and the men aboard the Jan Ellen saw the light. In the middle of the savage sea, they pulled the sailor aboard. And then, wondrously, they spotted and snatched the two other men from the Reaper's grip. Captain Vance turned toward the island. His crew tore the wet clothing from the survivors and gave them semi-dry gloves and hats and the coats off their own backs. And when the Jan Ellen arrived at the steamboat wharf, the Matinicus men stood in t-shirts and trousers, half frozen, but not as cold as the crew of the Harkness. I know firsthand how cold the rescued men were. As one of three stern men standing on the wharf, I was chosen as a warm body. <laughs> and found myself in the back of someone's truck sharing a sleeping bag with a fella just plucked from the sea. Stripped of his soaked loner coat and hat, his bare body was ice. I wrapped my arms around him and snuggled the shivering, chattering, nearly naked man. I remember his tidy whities wet against my pants. I shared my heat across the island until we got him inside Vance and Estee's house, where there's a warm fire and a huge pot of lobster stew and biscuits. My memory of the celebration will be foggy forever because I got drunk, real drunk. It was like a good Christmas party. Lots of joy and love for those around you. Vance making wisecracks. People laughing. The three strangers he saved sat at his table. Blankets around their shoulders. Hair still wet and salty from the sea. In shock. Slowly. Hesitantly. They start to eat the best stew in the world. And biscuits, not believing they're alive, wondering. For a second. If they're in heaven.
Tough Island is written, produced, and voiced by Crash Berry. That's me. Tough Island, Maine is based on the book Tough Island. Visit CrashBerry.com for other episodes of Tough Island, Maine. And remember, be careful on Tough Island. <laughs>